Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, welcome to the Red Box Podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Rounding off another busy week, we looked at basically Tory MPs are unhappy on loads of fronts. Even Theresa May's cracking jokes about the government, that's how bad things are uh, already. Uh, But um, on today's episode, we've been looking at the US vice presidential debate, which happened overnight. Obviously, the election happening on November the 3rd. I'm going to be presenting the overnight election results show on Times Radio. If you are in America, we want to hear from you. We want you to be our correspondent. So if you want to come on the radio uh, during the election night, get in touch with you. Email me. Email me, matt.chorley at times.radio, and you could be on the radio on election night. Only if you're in America, and doing bad American accents uh, won't work. Uh, Anyway, back to the debate uh, that happened overnight. Mike Pence versus Kamala Harris. Okay, stand by your beds. Stand by your beds. We're heading stateside right now. Who stole the show? Who's everyone talking about this morning? Who is certain to run for president in 2024? Yeah, I think it's I think it's this guy. All morning, Anna Cunningham, the newsreader, has been struggling. To, it's amazing that she can even read the news story about a fly attracting 90,000 Twitter followers. But, of course, it's the fly that landed on Mike Pence's head um, during the uh, vice presidential debate with Kamala Harris uh, last night. An an event notable for being, well, not terribly notable, it has to be said. This is US pollster Rachel Bitterkoffer. Perhaps the main takeaway from this debate is how, well, normal it was compared to the first presidential debate. This really was a debate that felt, you know, typical for a presidential-level debate. Are things going back to normal? There's a 
There's a heartwarming prospect uh, for us to all contemplate. So what we're going to do now is pick through the debate, uh, speak to some of our um, uh, pollster friends and analysts. We'll obviously also hear from Henry Zeffman in Washington what he made of the whole thing. Uh, so Kamala Harris and Mike Pence met in Salt Lake City last night for the first vice presidential debate. But why does this debate matter? Normally they don't particularly, but why does this b debate matter in particular? Jacob Rubik... Rubashkin is a reporter and analyst for Inside Elections. Vice presidential debates are typically sleepy affairs, afterthoughts in the grand scheme of the election. But Wednesday night's clash drew an unusual amount of attention, not because of either of them, but because of their running mates. With President Trump still sick with coronavirus, and with Joe Biden potentially becoming the oldest president in American history, Americans are feeling the need to get to know both Pence and Harris a little bit better which they certainly did having watched last night. Now, both stretched the rules a bit without quite breaking them in the same way that President Trump managed last week in the debate with Joe Biden. Here's Kyle Kondik, managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball, uh, uh, taking a look at the debate. His Harris is a history-making candidate in that um, she's one of only a, a few women and the first person, first uh, woman of color to serve as a uh, major party running mate. And, and I think sometimes there are certain rules um, that unfortunately women have to sort of play by that men don't necessarily need to in that um, Pence can interrupt all he wants and maybe wouldn't get criticized for it as much. But um, Harris, as a woman, might uh, uh, might face more criticism. And, and, and that's inherently unfair, I think. But it may have been um, part of the dynamic. And it, it definitely seemed like Pence had more speaking time. Now, they covered uh, loads of topics, as you'd expect, the economy and healthcare and the Supreme Court and climate change. But coronavirus inevitably dominated. Uh, Democrat candidate Kamala Harris came out fighting on the very first question. Well, the American people have witnessed what is the greatest failure of any presidential administration in the history of our country. And here are the facts. 210,000 dead people in our country in just the last several months. Over seven million people who have contracted this disease. One in five businesses closed. We're looking at frontline workers who have been treated like sacrificial workers. We are looking at over 30 million people who in the last several months had to file for unemployment. And here's the thing, on January 28th, the vice president and the president were informed about the nature of this pandemic. They were informed that it's lethal in consequence, that it is airborne, that it will affect young people, and that it would be contracted because it is airborne. And they knew what was happening, and they didn't tell you. Can you imagine if you knew on January 28th, as opposed to March 13th, what they knew, what you might have done to prepare. They knew and they covered it up. The president said it was a hoax. They minimized the seriousness of it. The president said, you're on one side of his ledger if you wear a mask, you're on the other side of his ledger if you don't. And in spite of all of that, today they still don't have a plan. Well, that's Kamala Harris. Uh Responded to the very first question, really socking it to uh, the Trump administration. This is Henry Zeffman, The Times Washington correspondent. Kamala Harris is a career prosecutor, and it showed, never more so than in the very first answer. 
when she gave probably the strongest evidence yet that she might one day have the chops to carry the top of a democratic presidential ticket. She was asked about coronavirus and she prosecuted the case about the Trump administration's failures in combating the pandemic really effectively. But that wasn't really the way she continued. It was a safe performance. You know, if, if she was managed by Jose Mourinho, you'd have said she turned up to park the bus. And that was clearly the right strategy because, as we've discussed before, Joe Biden is way, way, way ahead in the polls. I mean, as the debate began, the 538 polling average ticked up to a 9.5 point lead. That's landslide territory. So her task was really simple. It was just not to mess up. She accomplished that. What about Mike Pence then, the Republican vice president? Well, he was forced to defend that extraordinary event in the White House Rose Garden uh, where they announced the new pick for the Supreme Court, which seems to become basically a super spreading event. If I may say, that Rose Garden event, there's been a great deal of speculation about it. My wife Karen and I were there and honoured to be there. Many of the people who were at that event, Susan, actually were tested for coronavirus. And it was an outdoor event, which all of our scientists regularly and routinely advise. The difference here is President Trump and I trust the American people to make choices in the best interest of their health. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris consistently talk about mandates, and not, not just mandates with the coronavirus, but a government takeover of health care, the you Green New President. Deal, all government control. We're about freedom and respecting the freedom of the American people. Let's talk about respecting the American people. You respect the American people when you tell them the truth. You respect the American people when you have the courage Which we've to be a leader done. speaking of those things that you may not want people to hear, but they need to hear so they can protect themselves. But this administration stood on information that if you had as a parent, if you had as a worker knowing you didn't have enough money saved up, and now you're standing in a food line because of the ineptitude of an administration that was unwilling to speak the truth to the American people. So let's talk about caring about the American people. The American people have had to sacrifice far too much because of the incompetence of this administration. Well, that was Kamala Harris hitting back at Mike Pence. So what was Mike Pence's best moment? We asked Jacob Bubashkin from Inside Elections. Pence had his best moment of the night when pressing Harris on the question of expanding the Supreme Court. Your party is actually openly advocating adding seats to the Supreme Court, which has had nine seats for 150 years, if you don't get your way. This is a classic case of if you can't win by the rules, you're going to change the rules. Now, you've refused to answer the question. Joe Biden has refused to answer the question. So I think the American people would really like to know if Judge Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed to the Supreme Court of the United States, are you and Joe Biden, if somehow you win this election, going to pack the Supreme Court to get your way? Harris notably did not answer the question, instead drawing from 19th century history and the example of Abraham Lincoln to argue against Barrett's nomination in the first place. And in a night full of deflected questions, this issue of Supreme Court expansion was the only one in which either candidate noted that, quote, for the record, end quote, the other candidate refused to respond. Okay, so what about Kamala Harris's best moment? Harris continued Joe Biden's effective strategy of delivering answers directly to the camera, rather than to Pence or the moderator. And her best moments came when addressing the Trump administration's lawsuit 
that seeks to overturn the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, and the effects that that would have on people with pre-existing conditions. If you have a pre-existing condition, heart disease, diabetes, breast cancer, they're coming for you. If you love someone who has a pre-existing condition, Thank you. Thank they're you, coming Harris. for you. If you are under the age of 26 on your parents' coverage, they're coming for you. That was Kamala Harris again and uh, Jacob Rubashkin picking out the best moments. Well, one of the sharpest moments came in a discussion about law and order. Kamala Harris said George Floyd, the unarmed black man who was killed by police officers in Minnesota, would still be alive if chokeholds were banned. Bad cops are bad for good cops. We need reform of our policing in America and our criminal justice system, which is why Joe and I will immediately ban chokeholds and carotid holes. George Floyd would be alive today if we did that. In response, Mike Pence criticised the suggestion there is systematic racism in the police force. And I must tell you, this, this, this presumption that you hear consistently uh, from Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, that, uh, that America is systemically racist, mm. and that, as Joe Biden said, that he believes that law enforcement has an implicit bias against minorities uh, is, is a great insult to the men and women who serve in law enforcement. And I want everyone to know who puts on the uniform of law enforcement every day that President Trump and I stand with you. Well, that did not sit well with the former state prosecutor for California. I will not sit here and be lectured by the vice president on what it means to enforce the laws of our country. I am the only one on this stage who has personally prosecuted everything from child sexual assault to homicide. Well, they, they clashed on a whole uh, series of issues. Uh, later, Mike Pence appeared to deny climate change, insisting that Donald Trump is led by the science. As I said, Susan, the climate is changing. We'll follow the science. But uh, once again, uh, Senator Harris uh, is denying the fact that they're going to raise taxes on every American. Joe Biden said twice in the debate last week that on day one he was going to repeal the Trump tax cuts. That was Mike Pence being asked uh, if climate change posed an existential threat to humanity. And he responded by saying that uh, the climate is changing and then talking about tax cuts. Uh, elsewhere, Kamala Harris also raised Donald Trump's refusal last week to condemn white supremacists. The president of the United States took a debate stage in front of 70 million Americans and refused to condemn white supremacists. Not true. And Not true. it wasn't like he didn't have a chance he didn't do it, and then he doubled down. And then he said, when pressed, stand back, stand by. If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app, or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Right, this next bit in the uh, in the debate, this really is one for uh, political nerds. The reality is when you look at the Biden plan, it reads an awful lot like what President Trump and I and our task force have been doing every step of the way. And quite frankly, when I look at their plan that talks about advancing testing, creating new PPE, developing a vaccine, um, it looks a little bit like plagiarism, which is something Joe Biden knows a little bit about. Now, what's Mike Pence getting at there? Well, back in Joe Biden, because Joe Biden's had several attempts at becoming president before, but in his doomed run for the White House in 1988... He was caught giving a speech which was quite a lot like one that had been given by then Labour leader Neil Kinnock. And I started thinking as I was coming over here, why is it that Joe Biden is the first in his family ever to go to a university? Why am I the first Kinnock in a thousand generations to be able to get to university? Why is it that my wife who's sitting out there in the audience is the first in her family to ever go to college. Why is Glennis the first woman in her family in a thousand generations to be able to get the university? No, it's not because they weren't as smart. It's not because they didn't work as hard. It's because they didn't have a platform upon which to stand. Does anybody really think that they didn't get what we had because they didn't have the talent or the strength or the endurance or the commitment, of course not. It was because there was no platform upon which they could stand. As uh, Neil Kinnock, uh, Neil Kinnock's speech there, which was uh, fairly um, certainly provided some inspiration for Joe Biden's speech, and the accusations of plagiarism were one of the reasons that he finished off his run for the White House in 1988. Interestingly, Joe Biden and Neil Kinnock both became um, good friends later on. Uh, now, just because last night's debate was a more sedate affair doesn't mean everyone behaved perfectly and digi- digi- 
can't pronounce the word, diligently answered every question. As Jacob Rubashkin, reporter and analyst for Insider Elections, explains. The night was a stark contrast to last week's bombastic debate between President Trump and Joe Biden. Pence and Harris largely respected each other's speaking time, though Pence did consistently speak over moderator Susan Page when she tried to keep him with his, within his allotted time. And both candidates took pains to avoid answering the majority of the questions posed by Page, instead pivoting to a different issue or circling back to answer a previous jab from their opponent. Right, so the big question then is, who won the debate? We asked US pollster Rachel Bitterkoffer. Republicans will say Pence did, Democrats will say Harris did. As an analyst, I think that Harris did um, you know, a very good job in terms of getting out the policies that differentiate the Biden-Harris ticket from the Trump-Pence ticket, um, and particularly really driving home some of the issues that the Trump um, administration is facing as they tackle coronavirus and, um, you know, go into this, you know, uh, appealing for a second term. So I think she was very well prepared in terms of getting and seizing these broad topics and driving home uh, specific policy points. So Kamala Harris was good, but as the Times' as Henry Zeffman notes, she wasn't too good. One of the concerns that Joe Biden's team had when they were considering different vice presidential running mates, something that was repeatedly leaked to American publications, was this fear that she was in it for herself, that she wouldn't be happy playing second fiddle when she so clearly has continuing presidential ambitions. But last night, she gave the performance of a solid, dependable deputy. She didn't talk about Kamala Harris's views on things. She talked about how Joe Biden was going to solve issues, how Joe Biden didn't want to ban fracking, for example, when Mike Pence tried to drive a wedge between her on that issue and on others. So not just if you're Kamala Harris watching that debate, you'd have been fairly pleased with how you equipped yourself. But I'm sure that Joe Biden watching it will have been happy with the choice he made of a running mate. What would Donald Trump have made watching it, though? What does all this mean for his hopes of staging a comeback? Carl Kondik, managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball again. The, the president has had a really bad uh, uh, time of it recently between his coronavirus diagnosis and the first debate. And it really seems like in terms of the polling that um, the president has been sort of sinking a little bit. Um, the general rule with the president has been, yes, he is unpopular, but... Um, Sometimes he, it seems like he's, he, his, his popularity falls even lower than it usually is. And typically what happens is that he, he kind of bounces back. And it's possible that um, this, this vice presidential debate in its own small way will maybe help the president recover a little bit of his lost standing. But overall, I think the president needs more than just to be kind of recovering his past standing um, because his past standing is still a situation where he's probably losing the election. Right, but we really need to talk about the real star of the show. Here's Carl Condor again. Honestly, I think it's possible that the thing that will be the scene the most that comes out of this debate um, in the days to come is something that basically has nothing to do with the debate at all, but that um, Mike Pence, the sitting vice president, had a fly on his head um, for a portion of the debate near the end, and I suspect that that will be a... A uh, huge laugh line for late night comedians and uh, other other observers. And that's maybe a larger way of saying that I don't know if anything necessarily really stood out as being um, super memorable about this debate. 
Well, thanks for that, Carl. Um, <laughs> he's probably right that the fly is what we'll, uh, we'll remember uh, from it. But what did voters uh, make of it? Well, the famous American pollster Frank Luntz carried out a focus group straight after the debate. Give me one word or phrase to describe Mike Pence based on what you saw this evening. Just one word or phrase. And I'm going to go in order. And so, Tom, from Nevada, I'm going to start with you. He could be president. Tom from Florida. Bit of a robot. Kurt from Florida. Presidential. Laura from Florida. Even keeled. I'm from Ohio. Presidential. Tony from New Hampshire. Bland. Harry from Pennsylvania. Uh, regressive. Debbie from Florida. Professional. Minnie from Nevada. Unsympathetic. James from Nevada. Um, cool and collected. Nick from Arizona. Typical politician. Kimberly from Ohio. Comfortable. Dead again. Comfortable. And John from North Carolina. Low emotion. Okay, now I'm going to flip it. And John, I'm going to start with you and go backwards. Give me a word or phrase from tonight to describe Kamala Harris. Evasive. Kimberly from Ohio. Nervous. Nick from Arizona. Focused on the past. James from Nevada. Shifting blame. Minnie from Nevada. Caring. Debbie from Florida. Snarky and sarcastic. Harry from Pennsylvania. Too rehearsed. Tony from New Hampshire. Nervous. John from Ohio. Evasive. Laura from Florida. Abrasive. Kurt from Florida. Unsteady. Tom from Florida. Rigid. And Tom from Nevada. Unpresidential. Well, that was the pollster Frank Luntz carrying out focus group with voters straight after the debate last night. It was sort of like Eurovision Song Contest there, of just people saying rude things about politicians. So uh, where do we go from here? What difference does it all make and what happens next? Let's now speak to Jason Reifler. He's a former Washington pollster and now a, a professor of politics at Exeter University. Morning, Jason. Good morning. Uh, what did you, fir first of all, sort of, you know, overall impression of the debate last night? Uh, overall impression is simply that it was um, like just about any other vice presidential debate there. Um, it was kind of boring. Um, both uh, candidates did good jobs making the case on behalf of the, their top of the ticket running mates. And it's extremely unlikely to to be a major shakeup in the election. Uh, now, Jason, not all vice presidential candidate debates are boring, are they? Um, there's one in particular that, that's got a special place in your heart. There is. Well, it was a super boring debate, but it was a it was a fabulous night. My wife and I, um, our first sort of uh, quasi date, um, was watching the 2000 vice presidential debate between Joe Lieberman and Dick Cheney. Um, we did not pay very close attention to the debate. And, <laughs> and now, 20 years later and two kids later, here we are living in the UK and couldn't be happier. And did you, did you stay up? Your, your commitment to it, did you stay up and watch it live last night? 
I did not watch it live. <laughs> no, similarly, I um, I watched it on the train on the way in this morning. So what happens now? I mean, given the, I mean, I suppose it, it, with Joe Biden so far ahead in the polls, you know, double digits in, in several of the averages, uh, it, it, all the focus really is on Donald Trump and what he might be able to do to sort of jolt this campaign back in his, his direction. Um, yeah, so there's, there, there's not, and there really isn't a ton that he can do. The economy's not going to change dramatically in the next month, um, at least not positively. The uh, state of the coronavirus in the United States and in the world isn't going to reverse itself. Um, the polls will tighten. The polls are probably, it's been an especially bad a week to 10 days uh, for Trump. And so the polls are probably showing a little bit larger lead out there than there really is. Um, and that will probably come back a little bit closer. Um, but Trump is really running out of time and there aren't um, there aren't a lot of things that he can do to turn it around. Any advertising they've purchased, they'll already have. Um, as your listeners probably know, the, in the United States, there's lots and lots of candidate paid for television advertising uh, that are key parts of the campaigns, but they can't buy a whole lot more. Um, they can't really change the messages that they're going to be putting in those ads. Um, his ability to go on the road um, because he has the coronavirus and have his rallies and generate press coverage that way is extremely limited. There just isn't a ton that he can do to turn things around. Uh, and just finally, what what impact, if anything, has his spell in hospital and, and testing positive for coronavirus had on the race? Um, it certainly hasn't been a, a positive um, for him. I, I think that it looks like he... Um, uh, it, it's sending a, I think it's consistent with the, it makes him appear consistent with a lot of the attacks on him that are coming from the Democrats, which is he hasn't been a strong leader on the coronavirus and COVID-19 and contracting it himself and not following, um, what are the standard treatment, uh, protocols and isolation, I think continues to undermine his message that he is the person best poised to to tackle this problem and that he's done a good job to date. Well, it's great to speak to you, Jason. Jason Reifer there, Washington, uh, former Washington pollster and now a professor of politics at Exeter University. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Uh, you can now listen back to my whole show on the Times Radio app, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasts, including Red Box 2. Make sure you subscribe and review at the Red Box podcast wherever you listen. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. <laughs>